All right, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Hidden Layers podcast, where we talk about all the exciting ways marketing, data, and deep learning are colliding. We like to talk about marketing's newest trends and its oldest problems, while hopefully learning a few new things along the way from the people behind the technology that keeps changing things every few months. This episode, we're extremely fortunate to have Mark Parrish as our guest. Mark is a 20-year veteran of e-commerce and marketing, has been on the cutting edge of all of this since its inception, building large, direct marketing-driven e-commerce sites and online communities, as well as executing multi-channel retailing strategies. He's held senior marketing and management roles at Barnes & Noble, Jigsaw, Capcom, uh, and many other places that you've heard of, Palm, Egghead, that's now, you know, was acquired by Amazon a long time ago. And more recently, he's been an investor and advisor to many tech startups with a wide, wide range of uh, marketing solutions. So Mark has an MBA from UCLA and an engineering degree from the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Thanks, Jeremy, for having me. So first, I, I wanted to to start um, in the data area with you because you've had a, a very diverse and long career in marketing investing. Um, I've personally always been interested in the Internet's ability to create and deliver large amounts of data. You know, that sort of beginning of the Internet was all about getting these blue chip companies online, taking them online, getting, getting them uh, used to uh, gathering more and interesting data from their customers. And, uh, you know, we, we weren't working together at the same time, but when I was at Digitas in the early 2000s, one of our big clients was Barnes & Noble. And, you know, one of our challenges there was helping them with all of their customer loyalty data. Uh, and back then they really didn't have – they were collecting it, but they really didn't have a lot of ideas on how to use it and how to take advantage of it. Um, and I was just wondering, you know, if we could start there and talk a little bit about your time at Barnes & Noble – um, and talk about, you know, exactly what you were doing, customer loyalty, like how did you use big data and how over those, you know, sort of seminal years of the Internet becoming more and more important, um, deal with that big data and, and uh, the evolution of what that brought to the business. Sure. So when, uh, you know, when Barnes & Noble first started back in the early 1990s, they, you know, their whole strategy was basically to roll out, a larger and larger footprint, and uh, it was a real estate play more than anything else, trying to get the right um, stores placed um, in various malls. And, you know, it wasn't a very small footprint store because you had about 100,000 titles, you know, per store. So after uh, some considerable time, uh, you know, the store build-out, it lasted probably around 15 years and got up to about maybe 750 stores. So the foot traffic that came in was quite exceptional. But what happened in the late 1990s is uh, there was this guy named Jeff Bezos who uh, started a little company called Amazon. And he was basically saying, we just want to sell books online. But his uh, approach to that was to sell books almost at below cost, at very razor-thin margins, take advantage of the fact that they weren't paying sales tax across state lines, and uh, you know undercut the the um, uh, the uh, price of books. At the same time, Barnes and Noble had a uh, had a competitor called called um, uh, forgetting Borders. the name, 
Borders. Borders, how could I forget it? Actually, the first Borders was in <laughs> Ann Arbor, Michigan. And Borders built up to about 600 um, stores and was really almost directly, you know, head-to-head competitive with, with Barnes & Noble. But in actuality, because um, at one point when Borders went bankrupt, I, I ended up buying the assets of of Borders and merging that data with Barnes & Noble data and finding out that actually almost only one third of the customers ever shopped at both. And um, that was very surprising actually to most of the executives who've been around a long time at Barnes and Noble, because they thought that that was actually in the, in the 90% range. And so what happened was the internet basically caught up and Barnes and Noble back in the early 2000s started a loyalty program uh, whereby it was pay to play. It was one of the very few, um, pay-to-play loyalty programs actually in the world at that time. So you had to pay $25 a year to get discounts in store. And, you know, it's a very good strategy actually because you got a 10% discount basically off all your purchases. There were some other perks um, as well. And uh, at the same time, Amazon was rising up and becoming a, you know, quite a threat to actually an existential threat to the company. And Amazon back in 2005 started a, a loyalty program as well. That was one of the few pay to play loyalty programs, which we call prime. And I don't know if you're a member of prime. I'm a member of prime. Uh, prime was started back in 2005. And at that point, uh, you know, wall street was very unforgiving actually of, uh, of this idea where they thought that it would either be too expensive at $79 a year for the, consumer or it was going to be too expensive for the company for Amazon itself. Also uh, what did Amazon uh, think of shipping very heavy items, which would you, you would, you would lose a lot of money on shipping on, but the actual sort of jujitsu move here was that about 80% of the items leaving Amazon's warehouses were going out free shipping anyway, because they were hitting the $25 minimum uh, threshold for free shipping. So a lot of these people that were coming into Prime were people that were getting free shipping anyway, and now they were paying for the shipping so that supposedly they could dip underneath that $25 limit. But what Amazon did was over the course of time, they put very heavy items outside of Prime. They put items which were very light and they would actually lose money on shipping on into a add-on order category. So they they knew how to algorithmically sort of take advantage of, um, you know, the consumer putting these into the, into um, the same order. So Amazon's, you know, shipping and their logistics are very, very complicated these days. They split orders um, a lot. Um, I don't know, Jeremy, if you're a, you're a prime member, but sometimes you'll order a few items and you'll get them in a few boxes over a couple of days. You'll also get items that, uh, by the way, the, the two-day shipping that you get free with Prime is almost just a suggestion. <laughs> sometimes they come in a day. Sometimes they come in three days. Sometimes they're lost. Obviously, they have problems with that. So it was a matter of actually getting the customer's expectation and the company's ability to deliver in, in line so that there are people keep um, renewing uh, the Prime membership, when I first started to take a look at them back in 2005, 2006, they almost had no, um, they had almost no Prime members. Now they have 
you know, tens of millions of them. And what started out as a free shipping um, framework now is attacking all aspects of the digital realm, which is streaming services, obviously the prime video, um, you know, reading with, um, with books uh, that are eBooks that are put into a lending library. So they have lots of things which are included in prime that a lot of people, you know, are getting used to, let's say, but overall it's a juggernaut. And, um, you know, they're literally, um, you know, tens of millions of, of paying prime members. They raised the cost of it up $20 in the last uh, few years. And they saw, you know, no diminishing of uh, people repeating their, their purchases. Yeah. I mean, for me, prime, uh, you know, I remember joining prime right at the beginning because, uh, I ordered all my Christmas presents for the family uh, online. It was just easier and faster. And I calculated that being a prime member alone just for that and all the shipping it would save me would more than pay for itself. And then by then it was, you know, two day free. And now, at, at a, now it's like, if I don't have a prime box uh, waiting for me when I get home, I, I feel like I'm, I'm missing something. I'm disappointed because <laughs> I order so many things uh, on Amazon now. It's just because yeah, the prime, and, you know, the prime pri- video, all that stuff too. You know, well, the prime numbers are really impressive, and um, yeah. you know, it is interesting to think back to the day when they first introduced it, and Wall Street was very skeptical of whether Am- this was going to help or hurt Amazon, and obviously, uh, you know the jury came in and was resounding that it, it, it helped the company tremendously in its growth. Yeah. yeah so look, as a, as an e-commerce veteran though, data has obviously played a huge part uh, on these things, whether it's logistics or, uh, or not, you know, where, where did you see, you know, in your long career, like where did you see data and analysis as like the key to, to your success? Well, most of, uh, you know, most of the ideas back, let's say, in the early 1990s were trying to put databases together so that we would have reams of mailing lists. And, um, you know, those that, uh, you know, that idea that we were going to reach people in a more targeted way through, you know, putting stamps on, on flyers uh, actually worked out very well. And the numbers supported it. Now, these are in days when, you know, you didn't have that many marketing outlets. Let's say you had, uh, you know, uh, television and radio and print, newspaper, you had direct, uh, and you had, let's say, outdoor, right? And now you have, you just have so many channels uh, for marketing, um, you know, for getting your message out as a marketer. That and most of them are digital, and the ones that are actually real world, let's say like, like outdoor, like uh, you know direct mail, those that have um, have gone out of favor. Many of them still work actually, and uh, you know Barnes and Noble does tens of millions of dollars a year driven by uh, mailers that go into the mail. So you know the more that I think about how we've changed in the digital marketing realm. The signals which used to come and uh, you know from people reacting let's say in store or through direct telephone calls or something like that have changed so that they're most of the signals now are coming in digitally 
So even if you are, are a physical retailer, let's say like Walmart, their whole transformation has come around because they've been able to handle data a little bit better. Now, obviously, uh, those people that came, you know, through e-commerce at the beginning, like Amazon, they had to change as well because it started leaving the desktop and going to mobile. So there's always going to be this sort of evolution uh, and rapid evolution now into different ways of advertising. If you take a look at companies like, uh, you know, Criteo, or which is sort of reinvented retargeting, just making it very, very easy for most people to come in and uh, most marketers to come in and do retargeting and understand it. Uh, but the, um, you know, the idea that uh, this is going to be the same landscape five years from now that it is today, um, you know, is, is the same as, you know, five years ago, if you said it was going to be the same landscape, people would have, you know, Hey, we've evolved to the, to the point where we don't have anything else to learn. So that five years from now, you know, as you were saying before, it's going to be mo mostly driven by artificial intelligence or machine learning. And, you know, marketers are going to basically do much better set and forget. But how this landscape changes is going to be dependent upon how companies, which are sort of the, you know, the data big dogs, let's say, or, you know, as I like to put it in a different way, the horsemen of the data apocalypse, because Google and Facebook have so much more data than everybody else. It's not about the algorithms. It's about the data set. And if you're a private company trying to get access to it, you're never going to be able to succeed. So you have to, you know, most of these, um, even cutting edge marketers today are, are nibbling around the edges where by, you know, the vast majority of the pie, um, is taken up by companies which see a lot more signals than anybody else. So is that a concern to you, you know, especially as an investor in startups now, marketing startups, do you feel like brands have no choice but to work with Google and Facebook uh, in, instead of sort of the new MarTech technologies? You know, for us, we, we, have, we have been able to see uh, great results just working with the data that, you know, the marketers have themselves, whether they're large or small, but, you know, we clearly understand that Facebook and Google have a huge amount of consumer data inside their wall gardens. So do you, do you think, you know, ha, ha, what, what advice would you have or what advice do you give to, you know, your, your MarTech investments and advisor uh, portfolio companies? Well, there are plenty of, you know, obviously there, there are not going to be four companies left on the face of the earth after all this is done. And the, um, you know, the idea that Amazon will be able to sell all things to all people is, is not correct. And, you know, from, from a, you know, from a retailing point of view, uh, many of the SKUs they just don't even have, right. And many of the things that um, they would have like, uh, you know, they would like to have, um, they may not just be able to, to get because the results, you know, there are all kinds of um, things that are sold around the periphery. Um, I, I'll just give you an example. Like Netflix has different content than, than Amazon does. And Netflix doesn't sell the new movies um, for streaming, you know, on a one-on-one -on -one basis. They do it all through subscription. 
So they're, you know, Netflix, which I thought was not going to be able to compete with Amazon, has competed very, very well with Amazon, and they've done it through, you know, getting unique uh, products that aren't available on Amazon. So you see the conundrum there, but Netflix still has a lot of data because the signals of people logging in and what they view and, you know, those kinds of things are, um, you know, are tremendously helpful to them. That being said, let's say you're a retailer who's, you know, selling, you know, some small widget and you want to be able to compete with uh, other people who are selling similar small widgets and they're selling them. You've got to be able to sell through Amazon. You've got to be able to sell it direct yourself. You've got to be able to establish retail presence, which is still a big percentage of the economy. And to do that in a smart way so that you can, you know, let's say you're only 20 or 30 people in that company, you can still get a lot of access to data that's being accumulated, uh, which is about in your set of sophistication, let's say. And it's done through companies, let's say, like Bombora or, you know, which is sort of like Signal Intent or G2 Crowd or, you know, something like that. And I don't think that that's going to be you know, um, insignificant in the near future. That's going to be very, very significant. However, the advantage that you have if you're a LinkedIn um, versus a, you know, a G2 crowd is, is dramatic, right? Because you're able to see all of the data on the back end that most of these companies are not able to see. Yeah, absolutely. And do you, do you think that, um, do you think that with, GDPR and things like that, the data will become harder to get uh, outside of your own realm. Well, you know, third parties like Axiom and, all, and companies right. like that that are collecting location data, things, demographic data. Do you think that it's going to become harder? I, I personally think that we're not going to see as large changes as, as uh, people think. I think that most consumers are used to contextual and targeted advertising and messaging and content now. But uh, just wondering what you're thinking on that with your, with your, you know. Yeah, these are, these are really uh, (laughs) difficult (laughs) philosophical arguments, right? Because (laughs) people call it GDPR. For those of you that, uh, you know, don't, don't know that it's called the general data protection regulation. And, uh, you know, it arrived a couple of weeks ago. I saw my first privacy policies online that said, Hey, we are GDPR compliant. Um, but some people call it the, do, the Google data protection regulation, so you know, yep. protecting against Google taking too much of your data. But the EU is obviously at the forefront of privacy and how governments and companies use your data. This is a whole podcast unto itself where we could you know, talk for several hours about what our philosophy is and how much you know, privacy – the average consumer can expect in the, uh, in the short term. This is a very, it's a minor step forward, I would say. Um, but it has big ramifications because none of the companies that have a lot of data, like uh, Facebook or Google, um, really like it that much. You know, they, they spent intense uh, lobbying efforts against it. But, you know, it, it could be that, um, you know, it's going to strafe the ad sellers. Yeah, so we're we're um, it's a little bit of a wait and see from all the folks that I've talked to. Of course, 
you have to make sure that you're adhering to it. But people are having trouble understanding what exactly that means, whether there's going to be significant consumer uptake, uh, and then how the regulatory body is, is going to uh, interpret the rules uh, and enforce them. So, as you said, uh, another whole podcast, um, but uh, just something I thought I'd ask, uh, ask while we had you. So, so just quickly well, moving on to um, AI, the term AI, you know, uh, what, what does that mean to you in your day-to-day now? Like what are you thinking about when you hear the term AI? Well, AI is, uh, you know, and I have a number of, um, I have a number of companies that I work with that are, you know, strictly, you know, they talk about AI all day. And the problem has been is that, number one, marketers don't understand what it means. I don't think engineers understand what it means most of the time. And it can mean anything from, you know, a an algorithm which takes in more data and adjusts itself, let's say like a, uh, like a uh, recommendation engine for retail SKUs, that's AI, but also, um, you know, a self-driving car, which takes in information and then, and then adjusts to it. Right. And a lot of the information is, you know, very specific to certain roads and, um, and situations. Right. So I've got a lot of concern that, there is, there's this muddled sense of what it means uh, or what the goals are, and the goals are very lofty, but the danger is that it will become sort of, um, we're going to become infantilized by it as well. It's going to take over all our thinking. If the machine does the thinking for you, where do you develop tools on your own, right? So we, you know, I really enjoyed the first season of um, Westworld Second season, I'm not quite a fan of, but the reason is is because they they discussed uh, more lofty intellectual concepts uh, in it than the second season, which seems to be you know devolving into uh, into a western. So, I think that we've got a lot of pitfalls in AI. Number one, just understanding what it does and how it can help you, uh, but from everything from lead generation to, um, you know, warehouse op- optimization within operations. I mean, it's going to touch everything and it's going to touch it very, very rapidly. You know, I grew up as a kid in um, Detroit, Michigan, and the impact of machinery and robots on the automotive industry was dramatic very dramatic. I mean, it was, you know, a lot of the uh, jobs in the auto- automobile industry, there were about 1.5 million United Auto Workers in the 19, uh, late 1950s, 1960s, and now I think there are about 200,000. And the amount of time, human time, human hours that it takes to build a car is somewhere around 20. It's not, it's not very many. So you take that idea, that mechanization – you know, is going to um, relieve us of a lot of mundane jobs that were very good jobs at some point, but, um, you know, were, were very difficult jobs to do. And then you look at the impact that it's going to have on people that actually think for a living as well, you know, and write algorithms that a lot of the times could write themselves, um, 
you know, in the future, right? So you're going to be able to frame the algorithm, and the algorithm is going to be able to think for itself all the way through. So we certainly don't look at, you know, trading um, on Wall Street is done algorithmically now most of the time. Uh, it doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to see an apocalypse of jobs there, um, like they did in the auto industry, but certainly there are going to be different ways that people are going to make a living in the future, especially in advertising. So it's not just the privacy rules, but it's the, you know, it's the, uh, it's the mechanization um, yeah. that's coming as well. Yeah. And so as, you know, as a marketer yourself, as a, as somebody who, you know, was always driven by uh, a number, Right, you had to get to a number. You had to, you had a certain sales goal. You had a certain uh, uh, KPI. Didn't matter what project you were working on. You know, we we see this that marketers are under pressure to get better results, continuously better results, and we feel like we've gotten to a point in the industry where uh, the automation of buying decisions and um, trying to drive a sale from an e-commerce perspective has reached a point where you have to have sort of a computer intervention compared to a manually guessing uh, uh, right. person. You know, have you felt yeah. that pressure? Do you, do you agree with that, uh, that synopsis? Yeah. So AI and machine learning, as you talked about it before, you know, could get us closer to one of those advertising sought goals, the most sought goals in advertising, which is relevance at scale. So you're able to, you know, one guy sitting in a back room is able to reach the 7 billion people on the, on the planet and put something in front of them that gets a reaction. But what all these technological advances um, are doing are creating new opportunities really for storytelling within marketing. And that's the thing that is lost on a lot of marketers is that I am able to get something in front of many, many different people, but they need to be, they need to be, there's got to be a reaction, an emotional reaction that mostly to what they're seeing. You can't. And so I think most of the time is coming up with great messaging and then trying to get it in front of the right people without getting it in too many of the, in front of too many wrong people. So, you know, artificial intelligence is really uh, a study in how to make machines intelligent or capable enough of solving problems as people can, but only the people really can create these stories at this point that really give you that, um, that pop as a brand or that pop as a campaign. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, and I think our time's about up. So I think that's a great place to end. Thank you very much, Mark, for your time. Uh, really interesting to hear about uh, your views and your evolution through the e-commerce and marketing spaces over the years. And we look forward to uh, hearing more from you in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. I appreciate it.